As I read in Ephesians, Paul says he prays that we might know him better. One of the ways we do that is to hear and learn from his word. And so Matt will be continuing to preach from Revelation today. And that is how we get to know him better. So I'm going to read the scripture from Revelation 2, 18 to 29, Revelation 13, 2 to 18 to 29 in the ESV version. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have, have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them, rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, and the, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And then I saw 
another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beasts in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. If you're visiting with us, I'd love to know what it's like to visit when we talk about the beasts in 666, and the reader gets to say sexual immorality that many times. Sure, it's an experience. What if the scriptures and the revelation specifically explain humans and humanity, war and genocide, and even why we get nervous when we're at an extended family gathering and there's a pause in conversation? The scriptures are incredibly clear about the hope, but also the reality of the world especially in a situation like most of ours where we know that we're going to have a roof over our head. We will probably not be arrested for calling Jesus Lord. We sometimes can miss the incredible honesty of the scriptures as it explains why the world is the way that it is. Psalm 2, which informs a great amount of the revelation, says, why do the nations rage? And people, I didn't bring my whole Bible up here, I just brought the Revelation, so I can't quote it, but it's referenced regularly in the Revelation, and then it talks about Jesus as one ruling with a rod of iron. And in many respects, Revelation 13 answers the question, why do the nations rage? It is because they're susceptible to the influence of the beast of the sea and of the earth. And even as we talk about 666 or 666 and we talk about the beast of the sea and we talk about blasphemy and the beast of the land, don't miss, please don't miss that this is a book more predominantly about worship. Jesus is speaking to the Thyatiran church and he's actually talking about a spiritual matter. So Jesus doesn't kill children, but he's using that language to the Thyatiran church as a way of waving his arms and talking about the incredible danger of what this woman was teaching. We'll get to what she was teaching in just a minute. But before we talk about that, we must notice that it is a book predominantly concerned with our worship and our allegiance, and therefore it becomes a book of encouragement. 
I mean, listening to the talk of the beasts, I doubt that you feel terribly encouraged. And yet the first century Christians would have because this was imagery that they were very familiar with. We have to do a little bit of work to understand how those images would have reflected things that they saw every day. And yet it's the same work for us because Jesus gave this vision to John, gave it to seven churches, and the number seven helps us understand that this is for us also, though it wasn't written to us. And did you see his commendation of the church in the midst of the children and the bed and the sexual immorality statements? Jesus then says some of the most encouraging things to the Thyatiran church. Continue in your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. Then all the negative stuff, which we'll talk about. Then he says something incredibly profound. I lay no other burden on you. Then he mentions some of the promises that followers of Christ receive, that they'll conquer. Psalm 2 describes Jesus as ruling with a rod of iron, the revelation. John sees that and realizes it's a connection to Psalm 2. And then there's an allusion here to men and women ruling in the new heavens and the new earth. Have you ever read Isaiah chapter 60? I've referenced it a few times over the course of the years, so I don't expect you to remember all that. Isaiah chapter 60 describes Christians in the new heavens and the new earth as the kings of the ages come to them on ships and they're judged by them. The promise to the Thyatiran church, to the men and women of that church who continue to trust Jesus is that they will not only be given the morning star, which is Christ himself. Later in the book of Revelation, Jesus describes himself as the morning star a lot of internal continuity of the book, but also that they'll be given authority over the nations. But I want to remind you, before we look more at chapter two and the problems in the Thyatiran church, or the problem, and before we get to the beast of the sea and the mark of the beast and the beast of the earth, and we'll talk about all that, I'm sure you'll leave totally clear about what all of this means. I'm I'm sure of it. Do not miss that this is a book predominantly about worship. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I'll explain that to you, don't worry. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. This is a profoundly encouraging statement from Jesus towards this church. Only hold fast what you have until I come. I've referenced a couple times theologian Marva Dawn at... uh, she teaches at a seminary in Vancouver, said the, the revelation is about Jesus is king. Satan thinks he is. Hang in there. If you've ever wondered, if you want a hook to just understand the book of Revelation, that's it, those three sa- statements. And I know many of you have heard me say that before. I think I've u- said it in at least two sermons. But do you catch it again in chapter two and in chapter 13? In the midst of all these talk about the beasts, what does John say? This is a call to the endurance of the saints. If you're a follower of Jesus, hold fast to his teaching. Hang in there. Continue to trust him with your heart and with your decisions. That's how the book, even amidst these wild imageries, I mean, the the beast looks like it was sewn together, doesn't it? I'll explain why. I promise. Maybe. We'll see how clear it is. Even in the midst of the image, right in the middle of that is the encouragement. This is a call to endurance. So this text, read aloud, studied, sang about, we've sang many of the verses from this and from other parts of the 
of the book is to encourage you to hang in there. The Thyatiran church was tolerating a prophetess, Jezebel, all this talk about killing descendants and sexual immorality, I believe is Jesus waving his arms and saying the spiritual significance of her false teaching is far more destructive than you realize. I believe Jesus is speaking metaphorically about what she was teaching. What did Jezebel, do you remember Jezebel from the Old Testament? What she taught was worship Yahweh and Baal. From a spiritual standpoint, that's both impossible and incredibly destructive to try and do. For a first century Christian, that's called Jesus Lord and Caesar Lord. That's one of the theories about her, and there are two, and I need to tell you for a whole bunch of reasons, you'll understand in a second, I think, I'm not sure which one she was teaching. There are kind of two theories about it. One is that she was teaching syncretism. That's a version of Christianity where, it's not a version of Christianity. It looks like Christianity, but you worship Jesus and call Caesar Lord. Therefore, it's actually leading people away from Jesus. The other version is, it might be a version of Christianity that states only our version or only, only our person or only our denomination or only our church understands the things of Christ and the scriptures. You guys know what I'm talking about? Have you heard a teacher who says, usually through subtle implication, they're the only one that understands this. Their denomination is the only one that gets it right. They're probably the only one that anyone is actually saved in their church. Very, very, very dangerous teaching. You see why I have to tell you that there are two options? Because otherwise I'm implying I'm the only one that gets it. Oh, I thought you guys were already with me and then you chuckled then. Syncretism does religious activity but then it goes into the world with not allegiance to Jesus. Syncretism worships self because if we say that we're worshiping Jesus but then we're not following him because we don't like something that he has to say or that the scripture has to say, we're actually worshiping ourselves. And in the language of the revelation, if we're not worshiping Jesus, we're actually worshiping the dragon. Syncretism is beast worship that looks like Christianity. Those are the deep things of Satan. When it looks like Christianity, but it's actually religious activity, where we think that by showing up on a Sunday morning that merits something before God, uh, where we think that religious activity merits something before God, Instead of we show up on a Sunday morning and do other religious things because he has loved us so much. And the difference can appear subtle. It looks very similar to perform religious activities because we think they merit something before God and to perform religious activities because the work of Christ has, (laughs) because his love is so great that we can't help but be generous, love neighbor, consider our words. The deep things of Satan are religious activity that is actually fully in line with the teachings of the world. And as we go about our week, nothing that Jesus says confronts us. 
Sometimes pastors in this moment talk about getting out of our comfort zone and, and that's not what I'm about to say. Some of you are very comfortable following Christ even when it's challenging. Some of you maybe need to get it. I just, I hate that phrase, comfort zone. Is that all right if I hate it? I'm using the word hate here to describe the phrase comfort zone. How do you all feel about that? But listen, because he is Lord, I'm going to, though I don't want to. Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Probably at least one or two of them are very challenging because you don't want to do them. I can think of three that I don't want to follow right now. And I want to follow, want to, want to follow them and by God's grace, I will continue to follow them. Because he is Lord, I will. No, I don't really feel like it. We long to not ignore our feelings, but not be mastered by them. And if you look at the way that Christ encourages us to live in the world while worshiping him and him only, our feelings will not always match up with that. Because he is Lord, though I don't fully understand it, I'm so thankful for Revelation 10 when uh, the thunder spoke and John started to write it down and the angel didn't write it down. I think one of the reasons that that's given to us is because it happened to John and he wanted to write it down. But the other reason is to remind us that we don't know everything and we can follow and trust Jesus without a full understanding of our theology or why it matters to neighbor or to God to follow him in that. What I'm attempting to do is press on where our allegiance is because Jesus' commands will challenge us, whether they're the commands towards generosity or towards words or how we use our skin in relation to neighbors. When the Thyatiran church tolerated Jezebel as the beast of the sea and the earth mark their people. This is a fun chapter, isn't it? Chapter 13, this patchwork beast. Did it remind you of anything? Those of you familiar with scripture, do you know what he's talking about with the blasphemy? In the first century, people largely worshiped the Roman Empire both in a religious way and in a functional way, religiously by calling Caesar Lord. A first century reader would have immediately started picturing coins with Roman emperors' heads on them that said, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. They also would have recognized functionally that people were very impressed with the so-called Pax Romana. I'm not a Latin person, so I don't know if I said that the wrong way. And these are the, the images given in Revelation 13, especially of the beast of the sea, would call these things to mind for the readers. Now, that doesn't mean that the beast of the sea is Rome. The beast of the sea is both more and less than Rome. But a first century reader would have recognized this immediately. And the... Um, the wounded head that didn't die is uh, Nero, who died in um, the first century, a couple of decades before this. And I <laughs> gotta share, when I study about this, a lot of the historians take it for granted that we have our first century Roman history down, and so we immediately catch all this. But here's the thing. When the talk about the horns sounds confusing to you, there's a key, and it's in the Old Testament. Daniel 7 and 8, the word horn is both mentioned and explained 27 times. And the beast that John saw is a conglomeration, a patchwork in reverse order of the beasts 
that represent oppressive nations in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. I don't say that to impress you. I do say it, though, because someone once asked me if I was qualified to teach on Revelation. That's how I responded. Thank you all for laughing. That's how I responded also. And here's what qualifies one to understand the book of Revelation. It's the Old Testament. Literally, every image can be at least partially explained in the Old Testament. 403 verses in the Revelation, well north of 500 allusions to the Old Testament in the Revelation. And I went through this morning, about 8 a.m., and was circling all the times that the word horn was described, mentioned, or alluded to in Daniel, and, the, and, and Daniel doesn't understand. By the way, both of those chapters end with humor. At the end of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel said he changed color because he was so scared. I assume that meant he turned white, but the text isn't that explicit. You guys think that's, I don't. I think the Bible's very interesting. The beast of the sea is imperial power of the state under the sway of evil. I'll say it again. Double check me. Read, read, read Daniel 7 and 8 and define it slightly differently than I am. Listen again. The beast of the sea is imperial power of the state under the sway of evil. Is the state always evil? Of course not. God utilizes governments to protect his people, to destroy evil. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. But can any governmental system come under the sway of the beast? Yes. Let's take an easy one, one that we're happy to judge, I think. Let's take a monarchy. When is a monarchy fitting in with Romans chapter 13, verse 4 and doing the will of God? When it's humble. When is a monarchy under the sway of the beast? When it claims divinity. And what then happens? The people are treated as less than and the upper level is treated as better than and the imago day is distorted. This happens in capitalism also. In capitalism, when is the system functioning in the way that Romans 13.4 would describe? When it is checked by a regular concern for justice in the midst of its free market philosophy. And when that doesn't happen, what do we believe? Ever onward, ever upward. I want my kids to have a better life than me. That's not a bad desire, especially if you're from an oppressed country, but it can be twisted by our current moment to believe that there's more wealth for our people because ever onward, ever upward. I'm not at all sure that that's happening. To, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to speak clearly about Revelation 13. Capitalism can function into Romans 13.4 and it can be under the sway of the beast of the sea. Socialism. Where does it need the check? It needs, it, it needs accountability to function the way it's supposed to function, which is to treat everyone equally. I don't know of an example of that, but I, it's, it's possible philosophically, but what typically happens? The rich become richer, the poor become more marginalized in each of the three systems I just said because that's them coming under the sway of the beast. This is a call to endurance. 
describing the beast of the sea, which is imperial power of the state under the sway of evil. It's a call to endurance. This would have encouraged the Turkish Christians in light of the might of the Roman Empire. They are still to call Jesus Lord and that is their opportunity to flourish as a human being by making much of God and learning to love neighbor regardless of the worship of Caesar. Should we get 666 out of the way so I'm not just leaving you hanging till the end before we talk about the beast of the earth? Would you like to or not? You want to wait? What do you want? Should we vote on it? <laughs> My opinion on the number 666 is this. It is a spiritual sign of full allegiance to the world. If the number seven is completion and holiness and those marked and sealed by God, Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, it's an invisible seal that they are gods and that eternally they cannot be harmed. The number 666 is not a weird credit card. It's not that new Apple card that you see on Instagram all the time. It's a spiritual sign that, you're alleg- that that person's allegiance is to the world. My very favorite resource on Revelation says that it's actually Nero's name spelled in this Greek Hebrew way, and I tell you that because I don't want you to think that I'm the only one that understands the book of Revelation. But my opinion is it is a spiritual sign of allegiance to the world. Jesus explains it in the parable of the seeds. He talks about the gospel going on fertile ground and going on uh, the road and going into thin soil and being burned up. Less beastie and evocative, but a good explanation of how men and women choose to worship other things than Jesus. Are we good? You at least know my opinion, right? On the number 666. I watched a video and it made me think it was this crazy, a long time in the 80s. It was very scary and all about credit cards. And Anyway, I think that's actually because the revelation is so beautifully evocative, then when it gives us an image we can understand more quickly, our brains run to that because we're so tired of trying to understand this cosmic imagery that we're like, oh, right, I just have to watch out for some kind of buying and purchasing scheme, and then I'll be eternally secure. And it's out of our fatigue that we come to that. The second beast is the propaganda machine of the first beast. As you think about empires that you know about from history that have oppressed people, it's not only that they've oppressed people because they have economic and military power, there was also a propaganda part of it that led people from thoughtful accountable, accountability within government into propaganda. Where do I get that? What does the second beast do? It convinces people to worship the first beast. All of the references in this text, which there are at least 10, probably more anecdotally, to blasphemy and to worship. Do you know what blasphemy is? We sometimes throw around words like heresy and blasphemy and things like that as though they're not incredibly significant spiritual words, and they are. Remember when Jesus was accused of blasphemy and they wanted to kill him, and you're like, gosh, that escalated quickly. It's because we don't rightly understand or biblically understand that blasphemy is claiming to be God. To a first century Turkish Christian, this was on every coin, not every coin, many of the coins that were available to them, it literally said Caesar is God. That's blasphemy. 
the second beast, convinces people to worship the first beast. One of my favorite things about my interpretation of chapter 13 is this is where I would actually agree with Hal Lindsey and with Tim LaHaye. Now, they would say it happens once, and I would say it happens throughout history, that nations fall under the sway of the first beast. Then the energy of the second beast convinces more and more and more people to give not just a national allegiance, but a spiritual allegiance as well, and thereby draw people away from Jesus. In many respects, I think the beasts are a little bit like Shilab and Ungoliant, and like nine of you know what I'm talking about, but I really just, we became better friends in that moment. <laughs> Did you see the Lord of the Rings? Remember the big spider? Okay, the big spider's name is Shalab, and Shalab was not created. She was the outcome of evil being present in the world. Her great-great-great-great-grandmother mentioned in the Cimmerillion, his name is Ungoliant. And Ungoliant was not created by the devil of Lord of the Rings whose name is Melkor. Oh yeah, we're doing a deep dive on the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's, it's happening. <laughs> Been here six years, you know who I am. It's fine. But hear me, Ungoliant was not created, but through darkness being present in the world and exerting its influence, never without God's knowledge, Iluvatar's knowledge, in this case, Lord of the Rings. But the evil came into being because of evil being around the world. The beasts are not created by God, but when sin entered the world, and because the God has not put the devil away, the evil one will convince even governments to harm and oppress people. Lord of the Rings analogy, over. I believe all of us have and will live under governments that function the way Romans 13.4 describes. And I believe that all of us have and will function under governments that are under the sway of the beast. And this is a call to the endurance of the saints to recall the promises of God in Revelation 7. The implication of the promises of God in Revelation 13 and the promises in Revelation 14 that followers of Jesus are sealed and eternally protected under the wings of God forever though God has not yet shackled the dragon and therefore we might be harmed in this life by the satanic trinity of the beast. That'd be a fun thing to hear the first part of the sermon. Like hear nothing else but satanic trinity for those who just came in. And so I want to encourage you if you are a follower of Jesus if you have said to him my allegiance, my heart, my words, my decisions, my stuff are yours. Guide me. You are sealed. You are protected. You are gathered up. You are Jesus's forever. And if you're not confident of your allegiance, I want to encourage you that the revelation would say, go ahead and lean into that a little bit. It's really, 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 really important to note that if your allegiance is not to Jesus, then it is actually to evil. I know that's a harsh, me harsh message. It's also a message of joy and life because in giving our allegiance to Jesus, we are drawn into the only possibility of a flourishing life in this life or the next. Would you pray with me?
Father in heaven, we praise you for telling us what our life looks like in light of your perspective. We thank you for letting, know, letting us know what our small moves of faith in light of your love and faithfulness to us look like in the spiritual realm. We praise and thank you for calling so many of us to yourself and sealing us forever. And for the men and women who are considering your gospel, Lord, would you both make it clear to them and help them to see the warm embrace of love that trusting in you is. And Holy Spirit, draw near to us and bless us as we continue to think and to sing and to worship through the rest of our week. For you are indeed great, O God. Amen.